Hi, this is Karen Warren. I'm the author of uh, Into Bones Like Oil and Slides, and you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror, fantasy, and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack. I'm a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. In today's episode, we'll be sharing our interview with Douglas Wynn, author of the collection Something in the Water and Other Stories, which was published by Weird House Press. Before the interview, Douglas does a reading from his short story, Time Out of Mind. This is an excerpt from a story called Time Out of Mind from Something in the Water. Becco was close to making a sale, telling a Cambridge geneticist and his wife about the infrared technique she'd used in the photo series when she spotted the fidgety guy across the room. Nothing about him fit the scene. Dressed in work boots and a Carhartt jacket and jeans, he stood out among the sport coat and little black dress art crowd, but it was the way he moved that caught her eye first, agitated, bouncing from one foot to the other like he needed to pee, and moving from one photo to another like he was searching for something. I love the juxtaposition of the ethereal aspect over the urban blight, the geneticist's wife was saying. Becca hadn't caught her name, but knew she was on her second glass of wine and already had a wall picked out for the photo. Thank you, Becca said. Would you excuse me for a moment? I'll be right back. The couple made polite noises, and Becca maneuvered through the crowd, the exhibit had drawn a better turnout than she'd hoped for, a credit to the gallery owner's instincts for a punchy press release. Becca had initially pushed back against Sarah's insistence that they remind the public the photos were taken during the 2019 Starry Wisdom terror attack on Boston, and that Becca had briefly been a person of interest in the investigation. That brief moment of infamy when her pursuit of urban exploration and art photography had placed her between an apocalyptic cult and a government counterterrorism agency was a chapter in her life she was trying to leave behind. The photo exhibit, for all of the financial hopes she had pinned on it, was, more importantly, a way for her to finally confront her memories of that time and hopefully attain some semblance of closure. Sarah Younger was shrewd enough to remind Becca of that motive, and in reminding the public of her brief moment in the news, they'd already managed to sell some of the smaller prints at prices she couldn't quite comprehend. She was almost starting to relax and enjoy herself when the ginger-haired guy in the canvas jacket got her hair up. Whatever his deal was, he wasn't an art photography aficionado. Making her way through the elbows and past the hors d'oeuvres table, she wondered if she should be wary of confronting the agitated man. But despite his stocky build and the intensity he radiated, his working-class dress somehow made him less intimidating than the rest of this crowd. 
Becca felt out of place trading her usual cargo pants and heavy metal t-shirt for black slacks and a blouse, but quite comfortable cutting a beeline toward potential danger. Hello, she said to his back when she reached him. May I help you? I'm the artist. He raised a finger and tapped the air in front of the photo. I saw this, he said. I saw something just like this. I forgot all about it, but it's coming back to me now. His eyes were fixed on the centerpiece of the exhibit, a 36-inch print of a crumbling brick wall in an abandoned textile mill on the north bank of the Charles River. The image showcased a signature element of the series, an anomaly in the infrared spectrum she'd captured that year and never again. The brick wall was awash with shapes that resembled fractal branches or tentacles rendered in ghostly silver light. A physicist she'd consulted with at MIT at Sarah's insistence in the run-up to the show theorized that the shapes could have been artifacts of a solar storm around the time of the celestial event the Starry Wisdom Church called the Red Equinox. Becca knew the real cause of the phenomena, and it was much stranger than that, though she'd sworn never to reveal it publicly when Spectra had conscripted her into their investigation after confiscating her camera and computers. Though her relationship with the agency had got off to a rocky start when they raided her apartment and abducted her with a helicopter, she'd worked a variety of assignments for them in the years following. Some of the rank-and-file officers from those days now held senior positions and even considered her a hero, but that didn't make it any easier to get permission for the exhibit. The solar storm cover story had greased the wheels. Now, here was this man off the street, possibly Exhibit A of their fears. What if the images trigger somebody? He turned to face her, the scent of marijuana wafting from his clothes, his hair, his eyes bloodshot. Maybe she was overestimating the significance of the encounter. Had she really just walked away from a cell to babysit a wandering stoner? Where was Sarah when she needed her? She scanned the crowd for the woman's platinum blonde hair and spotted it at the center of a small ring of patrons. Too far away to easily get her attention, and probably best not to do further financial damage. You took this picture? The man looked her over for the first time, his eyes narrowing with suspicion. Becca nodded. How did you hear about the show? I seen a postcard for it on a cork board at Harvard Square. It stopped me in my tracks. I couldn't stop looking at it. So I put it in my pocket, took it home. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Took it to work with me, to the pub. Asked some people they ever seen anything like it. Nobody did. But you have. Yeah? He scratched his scruffy chin. It's like... Imagine if a big thing happened to you in your life, a big crazy thing, like you were standing in line at the bank when it got robbed, or you had a one-night stand with a movie star, or got abducted by aliens or some shit, and then you forgot all about it. But years later, somebody shows you a picture from that day, and you're like, how did I forget that? How the fuck did I forget the wildest thing that ever happened to me? That'd be pretty crazy, right? Becca swallowed and found her throat was dry. It would be. We are joined by Douglas Wynn this evening. Douglas, it is great to see you. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thank you both so much for having me on. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on, and we look forward to talking about something in the water. Um, but before that, though, we should ask, you know, uh, you've done quite a bit of Lovecraftian and cosmic horror writing. So what gave you the kind of spark or what was the uh, impetus to uh, write your own cosmic horror stories? Uh, it took me a little while to to get around to that. I, I read Lovecraft, uh, I guess, in high school, probably because Stephen King said he was an influence. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, I think, the lurking fear and other stories, this 
um, paperback uh, that didn't necessarily have his best stories. You know, had had some good ones, but uh, that was enough to give me a taste of the the atmosphere of of cosmic horror and weird fiction uh, that stayed with me. And uh, when I finally got back to writing seriously and uh, and knew I wanted to write horror fiction and thrillers, um, you know, surveying the horror landscape, I, I can even though there's many kinds of horror that I love and that I that I, that I would like to write uh, dabble in someday, um, there's something about the cosmic horror that that was to me uh, it just spoke to me more than so much horror that's that's derived from uh from a christian worldview you know that that uh you know the vampire you you know that the the, the cross and the holy water are supposedly going to work uh the the rules of of horror tropes uh to me felt a little cliched compared to the idea that real horror would would be uh the idea that we we have no idea uh what what uh forces really lurk behind the fabric of the universe that was always very attractive to me and uh, so I, I wanted to play with the mythos. And after doing a couple of novels that were not cosmic horror necessarily, I finally decided to try my hand and see if I could put a twist on uh, on the Lovecraft mythos uh, with with my novel Red Equinox was was how I first started getting into that. And then uh, the thing is, when you've done some of the Lovecraftian stuff, it seems people ask you to keep doing more of it. <laughs> so that led to a bunch of short stories and anthologies, uh, fortunately. And and uh, by the time they added up to uh, to enough to to make a, a themed collection out of, uh, it had it had been about a decade because I'm slow. Uh, and that that's the book we're talking about, uh, Something in the Water. So somewhat related, uh, lots of authors uh, write derivative works uh, within the Lovecraft mythos. So aside from good prose, what do you feel sets good Lovecraftian slash cosmic horror stories apart from others? Uh, you know, it can be so many things. Uh, we had a, a panel about this last weekend at Necronomicon uh, in Providence, writing from existing material. How you know? How do you do it well? How do you how do you mess it up? Um, I think the 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 thing that the takeaway for me was um, nobody wants to be vanilla ice. Nobody wants to, to, to sample a much better song and bring nothing new to it, nothing exciting, you know, to not put your own spin and, and your own point of view and, and uh, you know, your own angle. Um, then you're just, you're just, you know, regurgitating someone else's work. Um, the ideas that we, that we have from, that we've inherited from writers like Lovecraft and Macon, um, you know, they're, they're so inspiring, but but uh, to just to just name drop monsters and and retread that stuff um, falls flat. Why why bother with that? So uh, there's so many ways to to make it your own and and uh, to reinvent some of these tropes to bring them into the modern world. And so I I always look for does someone bring something from their own experience to the work? Uh, there's a lot of great writers now who Lovecraft and and all of his racism would would never have approved of but who are who are using his world as as a lens through which they can tell their own stories and and bring their own experiences in and and have a conversation with with those themes of weird fiction so i'm always looking for that for how do you make it your own um so that there's something authentic there well given that 
<laughs> what would you say is your auteur element then? What's your distinctive voice uh, or element that you put into your work? That's that's a big question. Uh, a good one. But I, I don't know if authors are are necessarily the the best people to to be able to know what that is about their own work. Um, you hope that there's something that that sets it apart and makes it unique. Um, I know that there are there are themes that I return to again and again. Music is a big one. The power of music. Um, a lot of characters who are outsiders, artists, people maybe struggling with mental health issues. Uh, but you know, a lot of other writers do that. Uh, I, I'm drawn to uh, suspense. I it, there has to be an element of suspense for me to care about a story and get engaged in it. And it doesn't matter what genre it is. I think for stories to turn pages, they they need that. Um, but I, I think maybe the thing that that I'm most interested in exploring is whether it's cosmic horror or not, the idea that characters confront a world that is stranger than they previously imagined. And there are forces at work um, that are greater than they imagined. And when confronted with that, um, are, are they threatened by that? Are they empowered by it? Um, I, I think part of why that's attractive to me is is because I have this feeling that the world we live in these days, whether it's a, a raging pandemic or these faceless corporations that are mining our data or you know these political forces that work in the world, uh, we you know part of the reason that conspiracy theories have run rampant in recent years is I think in part because people are terrified by the fact that forces beyond their their Things they that are that they can't possibly know the scope of uh, can have profound and terrifying impact on their lives. So uh, that can feel very overwhelming and 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 disempowering. And the, I think that the cliche of cosmic horror is that uh, you know you are insignificant in the face of the universe. But the other side of that coin for me is. Why do these characters' lives still matter? What makes them significant in the face of that? Um, you know, what is what is it that makes it personal that that they can find within themselves that's that's worth fighting for? Um, so, I I think that's something that recurs in my work, whether or not it's a a thing that sets it apart. I, I gotta ask real quick: Did you ever see? It came out maybe five years ago, a movie called The Void. I didn't, but I know the I know the artwork very well because it looked so cool. And I kept telling myself, oh yeah, definitely gonna watch that. And uh haven't yet. <laughs> Is it good? Oh, it's yeah, one of the most amazing non-Lovecraft Lovecraftian movies out there. But you know, it, it takes place entirely in a hospital. It's a siege type film, you know, cultists outside, very John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, but you know, uh I just when you're explaining like what's your kind of personal stake when you're kind of insignificant and you know, the main character is kind of a police officer. He's not, he's not a very good police officer. And he's also, you know, he has a, his wife had a miscarriage and, you know, he's and dealing with, you know, I think they're separated yeah. or, you know, their, their relationship is in shambles. And it's sort of like you could watch a Godzilla movie for the monsters, but there's always that the human element too, of what's going on. You get to have, you know, both and yeah. that, that, the, uh, the void, this, popped in my head is a good example of it. and of course you know i'm thinking of some of the stories that we uh read in uh <laughs> things in the water with uh, uh I, I remember the the enigma signal you know a person even asks you know uh 
believing in something kind of bigger than yourself and gets yeah, eaten by a shot exactly. off though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check out the void. And thanks so much for doing the show on on those stories uh recently. I really enjoyed that. And it's weird because I I'm 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 weird about reading reviews and stuff and, and hearing anyone have any kind of conversation about my work, whether it's good or bad. I feel like it's not good for my head to to I don't know. Uh the stuff's already published, so you can't you can't fix it if they didn't like it, right? <laughs> you can only fix the next thing. But if you're even complimented by something, it can it can maybe get you off the path of how you should be approaching the the work at hand. You know, the next thing. Um, but I finally did, you know, get myself in the right mind frame to listen to people talk about two of my stories for an hour, <laughs> and uh, I'm so glad I did. I really enjoyed that because you never really hear short stories uh, explored in that kind of depth. So that was really cool. Uh, that that gave me kind of some new perspectives oh, on my on my own stuff. So thanks. I, I mean, by I don't want to say by trade because we have our normal you know eight to five jobs, but our other life is we're both pop culture scholars, and you know one mm -hmm. of the the things that we abide by is you know every piece of text, be it a story, film, music, or whatever, you know it's it's a vessel that contains something that's you know not just entertained, but you know. Uh, still has to say something and it's always good to kind of suss those things out because you know it, it everything kind of just by willing something into existence is one thing and that's a very important thing but to also to uh, imbue it with some sort of uh a meaning might be too broad but you know it has a something with it and we'd like to talk about it because you know a lot of things art and whatnot it's it's important by, by virtue of existing it's existing it's important so you know mm -hmm. some things that folks just don't think about the the short stories for instance and uh and you know it's also a, i we think a good way to spotlight you know other authors out there that you know so, some folks are just beginning and all they have is a short story or whatnot and so yeah, right. we've all we've always kind of prided ourselves to you know be a uh, fr from you know vanguard veteran folks to new folks you know find a way to uh help promote them but also talk meaningful about their stories because mm -hmm. that, that's important stuff to do so yeah, we're really, i really appreciate that, that kind of deep dive yeah very yeah. cool oh thank you well you mentioned music occurs a lot in your work and you are a musician yourself um right and one of the stories we did read uh the enigma signal is from the perspective of a of a jazz musician on a cruise ship in the Arctic. Uh, yes, yeah. So one of the kind of fun questions we like to ask is, you know, there's two sides to this. Uh, when you're writing, do you yourself, you know, listen to music like to, mm -hmm. to set the mood or maybe complimentary music to the subject matter? And conversely, when someone's engaging in your reading, do you like them to imagine a particular score or soundtrack uh, while they're reading? Interesting. Um... I do listen to music often when I'm writing. I don't really have soundtracks I would recommend for readers. Although when I when I wrote my first when I published my first novel, The Devil of Echo Lake, I did put together a Spotify playlist yeah. for that songs that are mentioned in in the books. That's about a it's it's a rock and roll ghost story. It takes place in a, in a haunted a haunted church that's been it's been converted into a recording studio. And uh, so that was fun to, uh, to to kind of create a soundtrack for after the fact. But I can't listen to music that has lyrics when I'm reading or writing really much. Uh, I mean, I'm about to mention a big exception of that. But um, as a reader, it's just too, I, I focus on lyrics. I, I 
you know, I used to write lyrics and, and uh, I can't be processing language in that way. I can't just tune them out. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's gotta be one or the other. Um, but when writing uh, the Spectrophiles books, um, the main character Becca is way into the band Tool, which is one of my favorite bands. And so I I did just put them on loop and and it got me kind of in touch with her energy. So I, I knew those songs so well, I'd heard them so many times. I could kind of, and the vocals are often kind of buried in the mix on, on Tool records. So uh, that was more of a, a mood that that I feel permeated those books for me. Um, I, I often listen to instrumental stuff, um, sort of hypnotic, trance type stuff when writing can get me into a groove where it'll help me to tune out distractions. Uh, a lot of the Trent Reznor film soundtracks do that very well for me. Uh, when I wrote a prequel to the Spectra Files called Smoke and Dagger, for some reason that that book, uh, the soundtrack for that while writing it was uh, the album Dionysus by Dead Can Dance. It just seemed to fit the tone that I needed. So I'll use music and I know other writers do this too. Uh, I'll pick a piece of music that that I associate strongly in my mind with the mood of a particular book. And you can kind of trick your brain into being productive on days when it's hard, um, when when you you know you, life is distracting you and it's hard to get into that writing mindset. I find that it's this Pavlovian thing that, oh, that piece of music that I that I've listened to so many times while writing this story can bring me back into the story. I'm trying to think if there's anything that uh that's connected to the current to the to the uh the short story collection here that that i was listening to these these were written over such a long period of time that uh i guess there isn't anything continuous there but um yeah just just you know getting into the rhythm of of music can can get the rhythm of, of t tapping those keys to uh be a, be a little more accommodating i for, for my own personal uh uh question here because i you know read your bio or i'd say oh you know uh douglas Moon's done uh you know rock music i'm like well rock can mean a lot of things now you just talked about uh dead can dance trent reznor and tool so i gotta ask are you a big industrial fan and uh dark wave fan not not i'm not so well versed in that there's a you know the few things that i know well i i like a lot but i i haven't really broadened my horizons more in that genre i'm uh I'm more of, you know, when it, when it comes to listening, uh, I don't know, it's it's pretty varied. But but I, I come from a lot of classic rock, prog rock, Pink oh, okay. Floyd, uh, Porcupine Tree, um, old, old Genesis, King Crimson. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is is what I was most drawn to as a musician and as a listener. Um, but but more recently, uh, the the electronic element of that is is attractive to me if it's if it's aggressive or hypnotic or or weird you know like, <laughs> nine, like nine inch nails all right so you mentioned earlier when we we're talking about horror that you know you've done some other genres and you've also uh kind of what got you in a cosmic horror but it sounds like you're also willing to explore other literary genres so anything on your kind of future to-do list that you know you'd like to explore maybe sword and sorcery or detective fiction or know what other genres interest you and why so uh pretty much all of it <laughs> is which is my problem um to keep myself interested i'm always trying to do something a little different next time than whatever i did the last time so with novellas i've experimented in some historical horror stories 
Um, I, I have a noir detective story called The Wind in My Heart. That's a novella um, that's based on Tibetan uh, Buddhism. Um, I've written a, a crime thriller called Steel Breeze. That's a full-length novel. I would love to do more crime fiction, more more thriller suspense stuff that's not necessarily supernatural. Um, and I grew up loving fantasy. My my son is a huge fantasy fan now, so I'm I'm looking at his library that I will inherit when he goes to college, <laughs> and uh, I'll be able to do that deep dive into catching up on the past uh, you know fifteen years of of popular fantasy fiction. But those are so fat and and I just the idea of writing epic fantasy, it's it's like, okay, well, when I have 10 years to spare, but I would love to dabble. I would love to to try my hand at at least one epic fantasy or um or just alternate world fantasy. I, I love books like uh Clive Barker's Magica is probably my all-time favorite book. Um, the the Dark Tower books by Stephen King. Horror writers who delved into parallel world fantasy are a a big love of mine. So I, I'd like to do that. But um, I find it's the more genre hopping I want to do, the harder it is to market anything. Because, oh. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, you without without focus, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for people to identify uh, what exactly you're doing. And at least in the Lovecraft area, I've done enough of that, that it's become a little bit of a brand for me, but I, I am interested in so many uh, other kinds of stories beyond that. Now, if I recall, one of your... Uh noir novellas it was put up by crystal lake wasn't it yeah that's the one i just mentioned uh the wind in my heart yeah that's the one you know we we enjoy uh some of the books that crystal lake has put out like uh oh yeah uh, they do great work there and whatnot and yeah they're yeah that tom Deedy uh had a novella out with them last year um really good book uh yeah they're always doing something interesting <laughs> all right well we'd like to talk about current stuff so come <laughs> reeling it in from uh, uh to something in the water and probably some other works as well so let's uh it, we just got done reading it talking about it on our last podcast and enjoyed it immensely so yeah i think what what we'd like to do is just start with the with the cover oh man so, that cover <laughs> oh yeah love um, that cover yeah we do too and it really does stand out um we, we uh, would love to hear, um, were you privy to how it came about? Did you have input or direction yeah, into it? I did. Yeah. Weird House, Weird House has been a pleasure to work with. Uh, Joe Mori is really devoted to producing beautiful books. And uh, he's, he's specializing in these uh, signed limited edition hardcovers. We, we also have an ebook and paperback out uh, for something in the water. But um, you can tell his first love is... is uh, to, to do up the deluxe version. So from the beginning of the project, when we were talking about doing a collection, I knew I would be writing some new stories for it, but we we had uh, already an idea of, of what many of the stories in it would be. Uh, so he told me from the outset that it would be illustrated. And uh, we talked about working with, with um, Wayne Miller, who has done lots of uh, Cthulhu mythos related work. I think he's done some work with Chaosium recently. Um, you know, many, many other books from small presses. Um, so for about a year while writing some of the new stories, I was having this back and forth dialogue with Wayne about uh, images that could accompany various stories in the book and and refining those. He would show me early sketches. We'd commit to an idea and he would develop it more and, and really a pleasure to collaborate and refine those black and white illustrations with him. Then for the cover, 
I had an idea about doing a, a water tower uh, from the title story and um, tentacles and and uh, this sort of moody sky. And so Wayne rendered this gorgeous image of that. But um, and I thought, well, that's it. That's the cover. But when when Joe, the publisher, saw it, he, he said, well, that's great. That's a great piece of art for this book, but it's it's not the cover. I think we can do better. I, th I know Wayne can can make it even even cooler and, uh, you know, bring bring uh, he, he thought having having people having having characters uh, on, on the cover would would be something that, that we could re connect the reader more to to uh, the book with that. So the second idea that I had was, was just from that same story of these women in, in this cult uh, walking into the sea in this new England uh, town where they have this annual celebration ritual and they sing this song to uh, something in the water. And uh, I didn't know what it would look like, how we'd render it. We we had various angles and ideas, but when I saw this painting he came up with, I was just knocked out. And uh, the the cool uh, like icing on the cake for this was that um, Joe then said, "Well, why don't we take the painting of the water tower and make that the end papers of the book, and we'll do those in full color." And uh, I was like, wow, I get both. I get both covers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so, uh, so very cool to have, have all of that art here. Um, Emmeline Miller is, is just fantastic. I printed the, uh, the cover on a canvas and hung it on my office wall uh, because I just think in, in the wide uh, wraparound cover of that, where you see Cthulhu on the back, it, it just has, has an even uh, bigger impact as, as a piece of art than the, the part we see on that front cover, which is still, still beautiful. So uh, yeah, very involved in that and just so lucky to be working with a really talented artist. I think, you know, I don't know if this is an option on the table, but, you know, see if y'all could do some like limited edition prints that you could sign and sell at the next con or something you go to because they are sporty. Right. Well, I should, you know, I should give uh, Wayne a plug here. Um, the, uh, the way that I was able to order that, that print, um, of the of the full cover art was through his deviant art site oh, okay. and and he's got a lot of art he's done for other books over the years that you can uh, decide on a, a a print size um and and what kind of print it'll be so I, I think you can order direct from uh from his deviant art like that already so yeah definitely want to support him well we'll, and, we'll find that out we'll put it in the show notes so listeners yeah. can go and click on it and take a look at it for sure yeah because yeah, they cool. definitely we definitely want people to be able to go take a look at the artwork as well as buy the book and support, you know, phenomenal artist. Yeah, definitely. So that's the exterior of the book. Time now, to talk about the interior. Yep. Now we've talked to a few folks who have edited collections and you know, we're kind of always fascinated. I mean, it seems like a simple thing, but you know, what order do you put the stories in? Because that kind of guides a reader, sets tone, sets uh, pace and everything. Well, uh, for a single author collection of this, you know, is that also something that you had to, you know, juggle as well? Like, these are the stories I want to put in. These are the order I want to put them in. And here's why. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think that is really important. Almost like in a novel, you you want something that will hook people in, in the beginning. Uh, you want to think about the 
kind of ebb and flow of of uh, the the pacing and and the tone of of the various stories. I you know to get back to music because I can't ever really get away from it for very long. <laughs> it reminds me of putting together an album of twelve songs or something. Uh, it, there's it's going to be some ballads. There's going to be some some uh, heavier things, some some up tempo things, and so you don't want to put too many of the same thing in a row. Was kind of my first thought, and and that you know when it comes to uh, fiction translated into okay how many of these are in first person how many are in third person um i i find i'm attracted to writing short fiction in first person for some reason um so i you know i had a number of those i wanted to break them up a bit with with a third person stuff uh which ones are short which ones are long i didn't want to string together a couple of really long ones so they're I think the newer ones, the ones that I wrote specifically for this collection, uh, Time Out of Mind and Contact, uh, those tend to be closer to a novella length. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a question of just how do you balance it? And then there's subject matter. Am I putting too many uh, stories that have that touch on the same kinds of ideas? Because there are these these themes that tend to come up for me again and again, besides just them being related to the Lovecraft mythos, some of them uh, being tied into music, like you mentioned, and uh, and some of them being connected to my novels. Uh, yeah, just uh, took a little bit of, of moving them around and and uh, trying to trying to find that that right um, running order. Um, you mentioned that you had written some news stories. So did you have any particular challenges with any of the stories in the collection, be them, you know, the original ones or, you know, the new ones uh, as you were putting them together? Um, yeah, you know, it, like I say, it's like 10 years of, uh, <laughs> of, of this slow drip that adds up to, uh, to a collection. Uh, and I think because they share a theme, not all of the short stories I write are Lovecraftian or cosmic horror, but for the ones that have that in common to to add up to a book uh, length, um, there are probably some challenges that I have forgotten <laughs> along the way. I think one of the nice things about writing Cthulhu mythos stuff and and writing stories uh, when I'm lucky enough to be invited to an anthology to contribute something, there's usually a very clear angle that the editors have in mind uh, for the kind of thing they're looking for. And that can really help me where uh, left, uh, you know, to my own devices, I would just, it would be too open-ended to to figure out what what I want to commit to for uh, a story. So having some, some kind of direction is usually enough to kickstart the brain and get me thinking about juxtapositions of ideas that might fit into that, that area that they want to explore for, uh, for an anthology. Um, I know that uh, the, uh, the Enigma signal signal was one that was, uh, I was invited to write a story for a collection about um, related to the mountains of madness by Lovecraft stories that would take place in um antarctica but i i wanted to write about something that took place in the arctic circle instead because i was interested in this idea that because of climate change it's opening up the northwest passage there which had never been passable by ships and i like the idea that um that the civilization at the south pole was connected to a kind of transmitting station at the north pole 
And uh, anyway, that got rejected by the editor. He didn't think it was close enough to what he was after. <laughs> I ended up putting it in, a, in another book, uh, contributed to, to an anthology um, called One of Us. Um, so, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, you, you aim at what, what they're asking for and, and miss the mark. Uh, this is all very subjective, but uh, it found it, you know, it found its place eventually. I think another one that was a little um, tricky for me was uh, the new novella, Time Out of Mind, is uh, is a kind of uh, uh, almost an epilogue to the Spectrophiles books in which uh, the, the protagonist of those novels, Becca Phillips, is still processing the trauma and the events uh, that that happens in in her Lovecraftian apocalypse through through the course of of that trilogy of novels. Uh, so revisiting those characters from those books was was a, a pleasure for me. Uh, it's nice to have a reason to an opportunity to do that. Uh, but the challenge there was wanting to write a story that would be accessible to people who hadn't read those novels. Mm -hmm. um, but still give enough background that they could have a sense of, of who these characters are and, and what their history is, even if only by by hinting at that while telling a new story um, about them and the Spectra agency that uh, that investigates all, all these weird happenings. Now, er earlier in this interview, we, we brought up the idea of, you know, what are your kind of trademark or auteur type elements? And I, I want to ask about this. I don't know if this is incidental or what, but the stories that we'd read in Something in the Water, they, they seem to be, they end on, I'm just going to call them kind of dark comedic notes, like, um, you know, tracking the, the black book, you know, it makes a, <laughs> a joke about, you know, eBay feedback and postage. And then, you know, the joke right. at the end of uh, Enigma Signal is, you know, a guy wanted to be part of something that he kind of is. Part of something and, larger than himself, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 You're kind of like, I, I not, I, I'm reaching here. I, I just, the best example I can think of is like ending of Tales from the Crypt. The Crypt Keeper would come out with a pun. And even like it's the end of some Twilight Zones, you know, Rod Serling. Yeah. yeah. Thing. So I got to ask, is, is that, was that accident or do you like to sneak that stuff in or, you know, this um, at a little bit that, of comedy? I was enjoying it. Right. That's interesting. Um, this is one of those examples of, of how listening to your show made me think about these in a, in a new light. I hadn't really thought of the twilight zone connection there, the, the Rod Serling commentary at the end that usually would have, have a little witticism, uh, you know, as a, as a final note. Um, I like that. I don't. I don't do it often. I think it's probably a coincidence that mm -hmm. you focused on two stories that that happen to do that, <laughs> both of them. Um, but I, I, I think when you're writing a short story, you uh, you have so little space, and and you want to have a sense of some kind of closure. So there's got to be some kind of again music, some kind of final cadence, some kind of you know, even if it's an unresolved note, it's it's got to be the right note. Um, and I think often a, you know, a little. A little joke enveloped in in there with with the tragedy can uh, can, can leaven that a bit and uh, and sometimes work. Sometimes I wonder if it's a bad idea. You know, yeah. we are here before. for it. We yeah. are here for it. We enjoyed it. Cool. You've got two fans right here. Thank you. Um, well, you've made comment about it uh, through through the interview and wanted to touch on a bit more about spectrophiles, which is your kind of your own alternate history Lovecraftian universe. And right. we'd love to hear from you overall, what was the series about and kind of what was the genesis of doing that series? 
uh, so I, I was interested in trying something Lovecraftian uh, in novel length. Uh, so I guess this Red Equinox, the first book in that series, which I didn't know would be a series at the time, was published in 2015. And uh, again, trying to keep myself interested, trying to trying to to come up with some kind of a challenge for the next novel I was going to do. I I became interested in in the idea that there was there was a lot of Lovecraftian fiction having a resurgence. So how was I going to do something different with it? And I'm I'm not saying that what I've done is is entirely unique. I, I found out uh, after I started writing the book that there was Delta Green, this whole uh, other uh, world of of uh, spy thriller meets Cthulhu mythos. And that that was the area that that I was drawn to. But for me, it all started with making lists. I, I would on my phone make these voice memos, these lists of of uh, the kinds of things that, that I thought would be fun to have in, in that kind of book, the kinds of things I would want to read in a modern Lovecraftian book that was semi-futuristic. And uh, most of it was going against the grain. And this, I don't know if this is, is a, a crazy approach. Um, Lovecraft mostly wrote short fiction that was very atmospheric. Um, I wanted to write a fast-paced thriller. So, uh, you know, are those antithetical? Can that can that work? Could that, uh, could that be a thing that didn't just fall on its face? But part of that impulse came from the idea that a lot of what I didn't get from Lovecraft, as brilliant as he was in so many areas, his imagination, his his mastery of atmosphere and language, um, you don't get a lot of character development. You don't get a diversity of characters. You you don't get dialogue that feels like real people would be speaking it. And so to tell a modern novel, of course, I wanted to bring all that to it, uh, that that um, you know, like any of my other novels, I wanted it to have have three-dimensional characters who uh who were dealing with the modern world and dealing dealing with uh you know their own internal conflict and uh and put them in a place where they would have to deal with political and global uh conflicts and then you know the horrors of, of the cosmic. Um so so yeah, just thinking where wherever I could push back against the way Lovecraft did things, female protagonist, uh, you know, diverse cast of characters, uh, fast pace. Those were the things that I found interesting. And so Red Equinox is is about a young woman who's an urban explorer and photographer. She explores these abandoned buildings and and takes this beautiful art photography of these decaying places using infrared um, techniques that that give everything a, a kind of eerie light. And she finds out that in the infrared spectrum that her camera is picking up, uh, there are these these organic um, textures emerging from from the brick walls. These uh, They look like fractal tentacles. And she starts to understand that something is coming through from, from another dimension. Uh, this puts her right between a group of apocalyptic cultists who are trying to facilitate this process using new technology and uh, a government agency that's that's trying to discover the plans of these cultists and, and thwart them. So she becomes a person of interest in that investigation. She's She's got the government cracking down on her thinking she may be involved. She's uh, She's got the cultists interested in her because her family has connections to 
this occult history. And um, over the course of the next two books, she gets deeper into this. She becomes allied with the Spectra Agency at times, and, and she's also, uh, again, in conflict with them at times. She can kind of almost see the point of view of the cultists at times because, uh, you know, dealing with with her own her own feelings about about mankind's uh, uh, current environmental predicament and 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 our our predilection for for you know building things like nuclear weapons, you know, maybe hey maybe the great old ones should inherit the planet. Uh, so so I had a lot of fun with with bringing all that into the modern world, dealing dealing with questions of counterterrorism and and uh, and the kind of paranoia that comes with that fear of the alien. Uh, we were really steeped in in that through um, the the years in which I was imagining what this story might be. So. Uh, yeah, that's the Spectre Files in a nutshell. And then I went back and wrote a prequel to that about Becca's grandmother uh, called Smoke and Dagger, which takes place um, in uh, the 1940s, where where uh, Jack Parsons, the historical occultist and rocket scientist, uh, is is uh, busy with his own cosmic horrors, and and Becca's grandmother and archaeologists gets gets involved in that. I'm enticed. Yeah, I, sounds exciting. We we like our spy stuff. I mean, Michelle did a book on James Bond essays and whatnot, so it's always cool to mm -hmm. see cool. the espionage genre, you know, tie into, uh, you know, occult stuff. Yeah, it's always kind of fun. You know, BPRD is it the stuff that Hellboy oh yeah, is from. Uh, oh what does that stand for? Uh, I don't know what BRPD stands for. Actually, yeah. I just know it as the Hellboy stuff. But you know, yeah. it's like a okay, Mike Minosha. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, he, he does does that series. Yeah. Cool. You know, there was a a book. There there was a brief period like a couple years ago where only in Canada James Bond became public domain for I heard about this. And a publisher went in there and did an anthology of Cthulhu James Bond stories. And it just flashed in the pan, printed, sold out. And you know, of course, this is the stuff you learn about like a year later. Like, no, I want to read that stuff. Yeah. Oh, guess what? We got a spectrum. So, we can read were, that were those were those Bond books from Canada not available to readers in the United States, even though they'd been published in Canada because of the copyright conflict? That it's very weird to me that in that one territory, I uh, have no Bond idea. went went public domain. Yeah, it it and it was something that I think was just in Canada, and I'm not sure. I mean, when I went back here. to research it, like they're like, nope, this was the one window for people who want to buy it, can only buy it. We're never doing this again. So I, mm. I don't yeah. know, but it's long out of print. But, yeah, there's so many interesting mashups. There's, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Cthulhu stuff. There's, uh, there, there was recently the, the, uh, the Puthulu anthology, right? Winnie the Pooh yeah. and Cthulhu, yeah. right? both are in the public domain. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, so many possibilities. Genre you know, lends itself very well to other genres, mm -hmm. like the occult detective and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, right. Totally. So, so we talked about spectrophiles. We talked about something in the water. Uh, and then just taking your body of work altogether, what would you say is probably for new readers or folks listening in, you know, if they want to dive into your work, what would you recommend folks start with? Um, I always think that my first novel, The Devil of Echo Lake, is is a pretty accessible starting point. It's got a little bit of everything. It's uh, it's a ghost story. It's uh, it's psychological horror because the main character, this burned out rock star, he's not sure if he's just losing his mind, if it's the drugs, if it's the touring, uh, or if he really is 
at a haunted church and uh, maybe his producer is the devil or maybe he's just paranoid. Um, so that's a lot of fun. It obviously ties into my musical background and uh, and and has some hints of, you know, there's there's an Arthur Macon influence there. Uh, the great God Pan uh, definitely figures in. So a little bit of everything in that one. Uh, and then for people interested in, in the more Lovecraftian stuff, I guess the new collection is a pretty good place to start because you get a, a taste of many different things, mm -hmm. some things that tie into the Spectre books, some things that tie into other books. In fact, um, in the story, The Last Chord, which is about a, a, a guitar that belonged to uh, Dead Legend and, and it's, it's up for auction and this instrument appraiser discovers it and finds out that there's a there's 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 an unfinished song haunting this guitar and he starts to find himself playing it discovering it uh that it, it may have uh these uh connections to to unlocking an, an apocalypse um that contains that that story contains a, a character from the devil of echo lake uh, a recording engineer who's one of the main characters uh jake campbell there's a story in something in the water uh called contact which ties into characters from my techno thriller with a dash of of cosmic horror called his own devices so yeah that that short collection is is kind of a gateway to many other uh stories of mine well i know that uh we've taken up quite a bit of your time really do appreciate that that you uh, had time to speak with us um as a kind of last question we'd love to know uh your next plans any news that you can share what you've got coming up um I am currently working on a novel, kind of a short novel, uh, a short novel that has taken me a very long time to write <laughs> <laughs> because I have this habit of when I, when I do novella length stuff, I, I don't know why I've been doing historical stuff. Smoke and Dagger is, is historical with Jack Parsons. Uh, the Wind in My Heart is kind of historical because it, it's, uh, I had to do a lot of research into 1990s uh, New York City, Chinatown uh, gangs and, and things like this. Um, and so my current uh, one of these uh, excursions is uh, is about the Winchester house in San Jose, California. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Winchester, who built the endless house that construction was never finished and uh, you know, there's all these theories about what was motivating her to do that. Did she have this guilt about the Winchester rifle fortune that her money came from? Did she feel haunted by victims of of the rifle? Uh, so once again, I, I say, oh, I'll write a short novel and, <laughs> and that, that won't take long. And then I realize that there's this ton of research, of course, to write anything historical. Uh, so I finally finished the first draft of that last week. I expect if if they like it, it it will be published uh, hopefully by Weird House again. Uh, so hopefully a similar production to what we did with Something in the Water. And uh, I'm very excited about that book and and the themes of of how modern gun violence may have may have sort of spiritual roots in this this kind of ghost story. Um, so uh, yeah, that that will hopefully be the next book. I have to ask: Did you go and visit the Winchester House? As part of I, I wish, oh, I wish that, uh, I wish, I wish, uh, that, um, my, my book advances were <laughs> such that I could just wow. book a flight to California for research. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I'm with small presses typically and, uh, lucky for me, or I maybe wouldn't have been able to even take this project on. They have a virtual 3D tour of the Winchester House, oh, wow. uh, the current uh, 
people operating tours of the house in person uh, have mapped um, pretty much every room of, of the house digitally, 3D. Um, so you get this seamless 360 photography experience where you can navigate through the house. And uh, that was so helpful for figuring out, okay, if they're in this room and the place is a maze. So yeah. it's it's hard to navigate even on a computer where you can kind of get a, a bird's eye view. Uh, but yeah, that was super helpful. Oh, that's great. I, I imagine him, you know, doing the the uh, recreation of the Winchester house and it's just like kind of a 90s mist type point and click adventure. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> well, Douglas, we uh, certainly appreciate you coming on to talk about something in the, uh, the water. Uh, uh, a real pleasure. The collection, great success. We enjoyed reading it and we enjoyed talking to you about it. So thank you so very much, sir. Thank you so much, Nicholas and Michelle. It's really, really been nice talking with you. Um, hope, hope to do it again sometime. We would like to thank Karen Warren for providing this episode's opening bumper. We had the pleasure of interviewing Karen on our Transmissions episode that released in January. Karen is an award-winning Australian author of The Grief Hole and Tide of Stone, as well as contributing to many collections and anthologies such as New Maps of Dream. We wish Karen much continued success. For upcoming events, for our primary September episode dropping Sunday the 18th, Nicholas and I will review and discuss John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness that released in 1987 and stars Donald Pleasance, Jameson Parker, Lisa Bont, Victor Wong, Dennis Dunn, and rock icon Alice Cooper. And on Friday the 30th, we'll be releasing our transmission episode, guest to be announced on our next podcast. Additionally, we, we have some upcoming appearances. Nick will be on the Fan to Fan podcast discussing John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. And I'll be on Galactic Terror's YouTube show on October 13th, doing a nonfiction reading about horror comic book artist Bernie Wrightson. We'll update the show notes with links once these shows post. And we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Uh, we each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>